Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas and their intersections in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, before I start this episode with anthropologist and writer Stuart McLean, I want to talk about a tweet. <laughs> Sorry to talk about Twitter at the opening of a show, but a tweet by the uh, world-famous physicist Michio Kaku uh, the other day. Uh, Michio Kaku tweeted, For 2,000 years, philosophers and scientists have searched for a paradigm, a theme, an equation to describe the entire universe. This week, the God equation goes on sale, describing the greatest quest in the history of science. Have we finally found the theory of everything? Okay. (laughs) So, I haven't read the book, but leaving all that aside, there always is this like implicit (laughs) idea in a theory of everything that that's possible and what that entails. Um, I think that question, which is one that comes up a lot of times when physicists and scientists are are talking, um, at least in popular science and the popular imagination about physics, I think this sort of question reveals if I'm going to be nice about it, a really profound misguidedness. Everything, a theory of everything. Have we found it? Have we found that theory of everything? (laughs) When we talk about reality, when we talk about everything, we are, of course, talking about the world of objects, of planets, of material, stars, motion, maybe of time, of the microscopic and the macroscopic. But we know that that isn't everything, right? (laughs) There is not, for instance, a theory of everything that loves to talk about uh, also myth, stories, fiction, thoughts, feelings, the imagined world, the spiritual intensities of our lives, narratives, characters. These are all part of the picture of reality, I'd say. And um, I, I suppose you could say, look, if you give Michio a break, um, even though Michio did not put a space between the every and thing in everything, maybe he's just truly referring to things, the measurable and the quantifiable. Now, I don't think that that's true, but <laughs> but even so, that takes a lot for granted, including the myths of quantity and measure. What are we talking about when we talk about everything? What are things anyway. Would a theory of everything tell us why uh, hungry grass exists? Cursed spots in Ireland where to trot upon these little patches of grass would mean you would be struck forever with an eternal and deep hunger? Would a theory of everything tell us about spirits, about huldu folk and elves who wander out of snowstorms and into vision in Iceland? Will it tell us about centaurs and how centaurs could be imagined in the first place? Even if you think all the above are just stories, will it tell us about stories? And will it tell us about why you consider some things to be stories and other things to be real? And why you would separate those out? What gets included in everything and what gets excluded? A materialist view of reality is seen as somehow progressive and cutting edge. We've been searching for this question for 2,000 years. We've been searching for the answer. And now we have it through science. 
through physics, but it doesn't even approach any of those topics I just talked about. <laughs> not anymore, not right now, at least it doesn't. And equally, conceptions of reality that include magical beings and origin stories and the origins of stories and the supernatural, they're often dismissed by so-called progressive people as backwards or regressive or shallow. So take, for instance, the anger at the beginning of this year at uh, the QAnon conspiracy theorists on the storming of the Capitol building. Um, of course, I'm not happy with that group in any way, shape, or form either, but I just want to look at the response to it, the way that narratives about spirituality were linked in immediately to that movement. So you had stories about, oh, see, the New Age movement has always overlapped with conservatism and fascism. Uh, alternative medicine has always been uh, part of fascist communities. Stories about how the QAnon shaman would only eat organic food in his incarceration and how that was linked to occultism, so that must somehow be related to Nazis and all this. There's this whole crazy straw of twists and turns <laughs> to condemn the magical, the occult, the supernatural, the other than materialistic, and the other than scientific to show like that group of people is regressive. That group of people come from just a different time. They can't let go of their dumb magical beliefs and just get with it, get with the present. Now, I don't have any alignment with the politics of that group at all, um, but nor do I think that this is the proper response. There's this notion that the supernatural, the magical, the occult marks an old way of living, a sort of relic that helps us identify even what is modern and progressive simply by its absence. If magic is gone, then we're civilized. Now, of course, <laughs> if you listen to this show or have listened to the work of many of my guests, you'll know that I do not believe, nor do I think is there's good evidence that the supernatural has really disappeared or magic has disappeared. It's been shuffled around. So whether you listen to episode 137 with Mitch Horowitz, the New Age scholar, or with the paranormal investigator John Tenney, who was on episode 133, or you know more recent episodes with Diane Pasolka, who's a scholar of religions and studies UFO uh, beliefs and encounters on episode 144, and especially... <laughs> episode 141 with Jason Josephson Storm, where we talked about this myth of disenchantment, you know that that has not disappeared. It's been moved around. And, um, you know, on top of all that, of course, that the supernatural has just sort of shuffled into different places in culture, there exists in plenty of cultures where imperialism has not succeeded in violently stamping it out. <laughs> um, supernatural, magical, spiritual, uh, non-materialist understandings of the world. And sometimes, even where it has been really stamped out, it's still giving life. It's, it's hidden. You know, it's giving life to those cultures from a hidden place. What you might notice is gone, though, and this is something I've brought up in some of those episodes. What you might notice is gone is that there's a class of laborers who used to be around who could tell us what's worth accepting and what's not when it comes to these matters. Um, I talked about this particularly 
in episode 98 with the witchcraft scholar Thomas Waters. What do I mean this class of laborers? I don't mean where, you know, people who can just say where there's an overlap between new age ideas and fascist ones. Any amateur journalist with Google can do that. And they do again and again. <laughs> and I don't just mean having a so-called magical perspective, but adopting neoliberal or conservative politics without thinking. I mean, any moron with a blog and a robe can do that. And that happens again and again <laughs> as well. I mean, somebody who can tell where the substantial contact points are between the political and the supernatural and the magical. I mean, where magic works and where it's nonsense. Someone can tell you that. Um, someone who can say where a cast spell or myth is really just doing service to a political economy or an ideology and where it needs to be considered in its own right. Somebody who can indicate where a spiritual gesture or gestures are needed to untie other perspectives, political, cultural, economic, and where such a gesture or gestures would lead to paranoia and unfounded conspiracy beliefs. Someone who can point out where indigenous perspectives about ontologies and phenomenologies and epistemologies could assist us and where it would just be appropriation or form-fitting to try to bring them into different cultures to apply, to bear on different cultures. Like I said, we used to have figures like this, de-witchers, un-witchers, people who played a special role in so-called Western culture. I think there's a tremendous opportunity right now to reinvigorate that class of laborers. And I think a really amazing place to start is with people who are doing anthropological work anthropologists, folklorists, even travel writers, since many of these people already serve as mediators between Western, so-called Western materialistic worldviews and spiritualized worldviews. I think, um, and, and again, that's not to say that I think that these, <laughs> that all other cultures that are not Western cultures are not materialistic or scientific or whatever. But a lot of times, anthropologists, folklorists, and travel writers are finding the places where there's a kind of um, uh, luminescence or, or, or transparency, some, some bright sign of magic, the supernatural of angels, of fairies, of other beings, of different realms. It's why I think the role of the anthropologist in particular is so vital right now. Someone whose discipline is at least supposed to be, or said to be, based on friendship. To learn from people, whether they be in a rainforest or a city, whose life experiences include theur theurgical principles or spiritual principles or magical principles that are at odds with the most visible cultural narrative of the West. People, anthropologists, folklorists, travel writers who are comfortable being both in and outside of cultures, letting the spirits of different worlds meet in them, create new forms, have new conversations with each other within and then reporting back. It's not shamanic exactly, but it could be the role of the unwitcher, the de-witcher, the spiritual ambassador. So that questions like QAnon or the satanic panic in the past or 
how to understand the spiritual advisors to world leaders or eco-fascism in Russia or propaganda about spiritual sacrifice in China or the, the potential for leftist organizing among spiritual communities can be addressed. It takes a certain kind of listening, a certain kind of presence. But as new spiritual challenges and questions arise, who is truly qualified to answer? And I, I think that those groups of people have a, a tremendous opportunity here, especially since there's not a lot of university jobs for them anymore anyway. Anyway, I think you'll hear all this and more taken apart thoughtfully in this episode with anthropologist Stuart McLean. Stuart is the author of Fictionalizing Anthropology, Encounters and Fabulations at the Edges of the Human, as well as an earlier book, The Event and Its Terrors, Ireland, Famine, and Modernity. This is a great and intense conversation. We talk about the need to ask fundamental questions about creativity, the creativity of the world itself, of the cosmos, and how symbiosis and metamorphosis in particular become key principles in that. We talk about how when we start asking questions of reality, including what's real and what's not real, and what counts as real and not real, and how we'd know the difference between the two anyway, how when we start asking those questions, strange things start to happen. The world starts to shift and turn. And in that way, a sort of magic appears in and of itself in that move. Or rather, maybe to say the magic that was always there shifts just slightly so that it becomes perceptible and then imperceptible again. It's like a communication and bursts of light, of color, of ideas, and of beings. I am still reeling from this conversation because we jumped right in and we did not let up for the whole episode. But it's this sort of exploratory thinking, this kind of uh, conversation that traverses wide swaths of the inner and outer landscape that allows for real knowledge to be brought to bear on the encounters of the spiritual and the material, the human and the non-human, the vibrant and the dark, and to see why those distinctions, all of them, might even be false, or where they are not false, where they're true, where they're valuable, where they're useful. Anyway, I'm so excited to share this episode with you, friends. I. I want to say before we start, um, if you do not support the show on Patreon yet, uh, this show, <laughs> as you can tell from this episode and even from this intro, it, it takes a lot out of me and uh, I put a lot into it. And I'm so excited that it's just free for everybody and that I don't have any sponsors. It's just sponsored by listeners. You're my sponsors, and I don't even think of it as sponsors. I think we're in relationship with one another. So if you like this show, I'm so happy that you will support it. Uh, so go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Really think about it this time. If you thought about it other times, think about it this time. <laughs> patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, and do support the show. All right. Without further ado, here is the conversation between me and Stuart McLean. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and I am very happy to be here with you, Stuart McLean. Hi. 
Hi. <laughs> um, okay, so where to start? There's so many different places <laughs> to start with you. So I think um, maybe we'll just sort of jump into the deep end right off the bat. Okay, so you know something that comes up in your work again and again is kind of um, a merging, a symbiosis, and also metamorphosis. You have this great essay called Stories and Cosmogenies, Imagining Creativity Beyond Nature and Culture. And in that, you know, there's this part where you quote Lucretius. So I'm going to, I'm going to start there. I'm going to start with centaurs uh, for everybody that's a big centaur fan listening to this episode. Here we go. Um, But so the Lucretius quote is, the image of a centaur, for instance, is certainly not formed from life since no living creature of this sort has ever existed. But as I've just explained, where surface where surface films from a horse and a man accidentally come into contact, they may easily stick together on the spot because of the delicacy and flimsiness of their texture. Yeah. First of all, it's weird that Lucretius used that language. Um, I had to like read it a bunch of times to realize that it was actually Lucretius and I hadn't read it with someone else. But, um, but the reason why I'm starting there um, is where you're using it to reference the sort of uh, way uh, forms come together in the cosmos, in the universe, in matter, in stories, and that it all sort of happens in this weird combinatory way, the way things can be sort of evinced from the universe and come together mm-hmm. and entwine together and form imaginative forms or material forms. So I think we'll start, I think we should just start there at, now that everybody's already lost within the first like minute and a half, but let's <laughs> let's sort of start there and maybe move around and make some sense of it. Hmm. Okay, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that was the first time I ever read Lucretius. That that passage um, struck me as wonderfully strange. It, it, it was something that that was kind of arresting that I I, I lingered over. Um, and I've always had, uh, I guess, since childhood, uh, a, a deep fascination with stories and, and images of metamorphic combinatory uh, figures in, in folklore and mythology. Um, and yeah, I know, I'm not sure that I've ever adequately rationalized that to myself, but it's it's a kind of enduring <laughs> fascination that, that that seems to to propel me in various ways. Um, yeah, so I was um, I think drawn to Lucretius just in the sense that it seemed to offer this wonderfully uh, strange, but also very very um, materialist in a sense vision of a a universe that was constantly uh both in flux but also constantly forming these these strange unexpected combinations which would form uh dissolve reform and and so forth um and also the fact that this was was done in in the format of a, an epic poem the idea of a, a treatise on physics in the form of a an epic poem was fascinating given the um much more compartmentalized uh, division of um, the, not just the humanities and the sciences, but particularly the, the uh, creative arts and the sciences and the, the academic world that I, I um, came into. Um, so I was, I was 
intrigued by uh, this writer for whom some of these uh, compartmentalizations that, that I'd, I'd had to deal with myself simply didn't exist at all that there was no there was no issue here about how to connect the the um the arts or the humanities and the sciences it was simply uh yeah one could write an epic poem about physics and that was <laughs> there it was um it, it also seemed to um entirely sidestep a lot of the uh the fretting and angsting about how to overcome some of these divisions that that I, I also found in in uh, discussion, perhaps inevitably, given that you know, as any, anyone working in the academy from the late twentieth, early twenty first century is is kind of trying to navigate or to to over, overcome these these uh, these kinds of. Uh, knowledge silos uh, and the fact that that it was um, it was not even something to worry about for Lucretius it was just do it it's <laughs> this is a world where these 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 things don't uh, don't matter um so that that was that was very inspiring to me I think as yeah. well and, well I, I think it's interesting because there's like you know you're saying that he does that with the different <laughs> sort of what we would call disciplines now mm -hmm. doesn't even matter to him. Yeah. And and your book fictionalizing anthropology is certainly populated by a bunch of thinkers for whom that doesn't matter. You know, Michel Serre, Deleuze, the, those kinds of thinkers, those kinds yeah. as if there are lots of, but anyway, um, I think that, um, so there's that interesting aspect of just Lucretius's method towards approaching things, but then also he's making this claim here of, this is how things come into existence and you're following up on it basically is that there's some sort of creative force here and, you know, maybe creativity gets a bad, it gets a bad rap or a bad, you know, name now because it's such corporate speak in the world, but there's a creative force here that sort of recombinates all sorts of things and it can bring things together in the imagination. It can bring things together in the physical world and um, it's really potent. And when I when I read this, I don't know if you know who Donald Williamson is. He's uh, no, almost nobody does. So, but he's he was a biologist who basically theorized that you know caterpillars and butterflies, or the organisms that used to be tadpole shape and frog shaped basically that they were they evolved separately into their forms and then came back together through mating and you know and then became a single species and while this was like just rejected out of hand by so many people my <clears throat> my main mentor lynn margley she took one of his papers and put it um in the proceeding of national Academy of Sciences, the PNAS, I think is, um, I think I got the right abbreviation. And it just enraged everybody because they said this flies in the face of Darwin, this blah, 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 but it does not fly in the face of Lucretius, which <laughs> I thought was really no, interesting. No, love this. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, but, but there's the, the reason why I'm bringing that up in relation to the centaur thing and some of what you're putting forth as a possibility here of, you know, kind of how things work is the, this idea of metamorphosis and symbiosis are completely intertwined. We, we might tend to think of them as separate, like here's metamorphosis, here's one form sort of morphing into another, and it's not a combinatory thing, but actually these two processes are completely interwoven with each other and maybe to the level of even 
the sort of productive constitutive forces of the world and of being. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think um, I've always been um, skeptical of attempts to see uh, the metamorphic and, and the combinatory as, as somehow different things or, or um, needing to be thought about in, in different terms. Uh, partly that I, I I think in a way what what's what's important in both cases is a um, a kind of space time of uh, of betweenness right uh, that that's kind of where um, things or what might what one might think of as provisionally separate entities become uh, intertwined and in mutually transformative ways and it's it's also the 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 movement of, of becoming of the, the the deforming of forms of forms on the way to becoming other forms but not necessarily arrived at some uh some definitive uh point uh and again i think that that's that seems to be very much central to uh lucretius's uh vision the the idea that what what enables uh worlds to form is uh the the swerve of the the atoms as they they deviate from their their downward cascade. This this um, uh, uh, aberrant movement, which is a, a phrase from a, a recent book about um, Deleuze by uh, David Lapoujard, who's a, a French philosopher, whose work I've been reading recently. But yeah, there seems to be a, a very profound sense of, of aberrant movement as a, a generative creative force in uh, mm. Lucretius. And that seems to be something that that uh, is operative both um, in terms of uh, what one might think of as metamorphosis, but also in terms of how uh, things might come together, combine, become something else in the process of uh, uh, of combining. Um, and of course, also the, the passage you quoted in, in um, Lucretius about the uh, the centaurs, these these image films that that uh, uh, somehow you know, detach themselves from the surfaces of bodies and then kind of get together to to produce something that that wouldn't otherwise uh, exist. Um, I think I like that too because of the sense of the images themselves having a a kind of um, yeah, a kind of life. Uh, and an ability to enter into relations with other images and to to form composites with other images that are something new, something different, um, and also because it seems to un undo any um, real distinction between uh, the image and what it's an image of. Right, the the image isn't simply a a representation of something that exists in its fullness elsewhere. The the image is a in a way a being in its own right that can liaise with other beings or couple with other mm -hmm. beings or, or you know, symbiotically um, morph into into something that that's different from either of the two uh, the two constituent image beings that that come together um and again that's something i i've very much uh pursued i think in in my uh my own uh writing that that i'm i'm, I'm interested in thinking about uh creativity um in a way that, that that's not tied to the problematic of uh, of representation or the generation of uh, of representations. Uh, in a way, it, it seems to me that that's um, an essential move to make if one, one wants to try to envision a, a creativity that's not um, simply human centered, or that's not a, a kind of human project of uh, right. reorganizing the world or imposing forms upon the world. 
we'll, 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 I think maybe towards the end sort of hash out this like human centered or non-human centered <laughs> thing. Cause I think it's, I don't want to say it's a point of disagreement. I think it's a point of like the way that we might sort of phrase things differently or, or maybe there is a real mm-hmm. disagreement there, but I don't, I don't want to treat it as a disagreement because it's really interesting Ooh. to me the way you, the way you sort of sort through it. Um, but I think there's this, you know, yes, really fascinating point. I mean, to bring up a sort of, you know, a biology example again, when you have symbioses happen, so like, <clears throat> you know, scientific narrative of symbiosis, a really old one is that this sort of thermoplasm blob, you know, organism had a symbiosis with a spirochete, you know, like a just curly Q organism. And eventually like when they bonded together, you know, the, the, the thermoplasm was this blob and it would just sort of float around and maybe extend or extrude itself every once in a while. But when it eventually formed the symbiosis with this spirochete, after they had tried to eat each other over a certain amount of time in a concentrated area, suddenly it, the, the organism kind of had a back and a front and then like the, the spirochete became a kind of rotor, you know, uh, and so direction was created, you know, a direction in life for the first time was created, right? So these properties that are completely new properties forming out of these combinatory things. But I'm wondering, I mean, do you, you, actually, it's bringing up a question for me. So just to trace that, do you think that these combinations, metamorphoses, all that, do you think that they're creating something that's new because you were talking about sort of representation and, you know, new forms and all that kind of, do you think that, because I just called this direction property new, a new property in life of direction, Mm -hmm. a new property of back and front in organisms, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Would you call them new or would you say that they're just all somehow already existent before they happen in that sort of plenty potentiality of (laughs) everything sort of coming forward? (laughs) Um, I don't know whether this is a very good answer, but in in a <laughs> certain sense, I I almost want to think of them as as both. Mm-hmm. Uh, that something like that directionality that, that that you you talk about with reference to the the spirochete and, and being able to propel itself. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think one can certainly talk about um, yeah, emergent properties that weren't weren't there previously but i'd also see that as as something that, that there is a kind of um continuity with um potentialities or potentialities to differ that that, that were were operative before the the emergence of the new so i, I i'm um I suppose I, I, I'm I'm a bit resistant to any notion of newness as some kind of absolutely radical break with what what came before. I'm, I'm kind of interested in how one might uh, conceive of of things that emerge as yeah yes new um, and in some sense unprecedented, but but not necessarily involving some kind of decisive rupture with the past that is it possible to conceive of uh, mm-hmm. uh, newness entering the world in ways that 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 doesn't presuppose that don't presuppose uh, such a break. Um, mm. So it seems to me, in some ways that that seems to be a very uh, modernist 
notion of, of newness, the idea of a, a radical right. break with the past. And I, I um, yeah, I can see how that that's that's informed um, various kinds of projects in the arts and other fields to to uh, to intervene to create new things of various kinds. But I, I, I'm sort of interested in, in in trying to, I suppose, think about um, change and continuity as as not radically dichotomous. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. makes some sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that would that yeah. puts you into agreement with Deleuze and difference and repetition, right? Like that you would have um, that. <clears throat> if, I mean, I've talked about it before on the show, but for people who don't know, like here's just the super one hundred one of that. Basically, like difference only comes difference really comes about by repeating things, which mm-hmm. sounds sort of like paradoxical. And um, you know, I always point out Deleuze s- said. He said, oh, I think I'm the first person to have ever noticed this. Isn't this strange? But actually, you know, like Rudolf Steiner described the same exact thing, um, <laughs> like a hundred, <laughs> not a hundred years before, but, you know, a good good deal before where he's sort of talking about where if you walk into a meadow of flowers, you know, the next time you walk into that meadow of flowers, you bring something to it and you add something to it, you know? And so basically, you know, for people that don't know, this is my first time ever talking to Stuart. If I talk to Stuart again, I'm going to bring everything that I had with me last time to Stuart. So I'm actually adding. So there's difference in every repeated interaction that we have that arises out of that. So I think that's kind of what you're saying with the new and the the break of it, but I'm not sure maybe there's something, maybe there's something else there. Um, yeah, no, I mean, certainly uh, one of the, the people who who's influenced my own thinking would be uh, Deleuze. Um, although, again, as you say, you know his his own his own <laughs> his own claim to novelty in that regard might be might be one that could be uh, could be questioned. And out of um, all things, you would claim novelty yeah. on. It just seems like a hilarious <laughs> contradiction for him. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I'd, I'd say that 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 was. Yeah, broadly what I was okay. uh, suggesting. <laughs> so I think I think maybe then it's good because it I'm I'm glad you said that. Um, because it sets me up to talk about the <laughs> the, other, the next thing I want to talk about, which is like I was thinking about, you know, when these forms of you know, all this sort of like um like I called it the plenty potentiality, but I'm borrowing that term from this guy, Calvin Luther Martin. Um but but you know he, the idea of when those forms are sort of coming into being or coming into existence or whatever, like magic in some way is, or, or, or sort of spiritual powers when you kind of seize one of them and you, you fix it in a way. Like I'm thinking about, you have this really great and it's kind of scary part in fictionalizing anthropology where, um, you have, uh, gosh, I got to find it. Yeah. So you're going to have to correct me if I don't say this guy's name properly, but this sort of shaman in training almost, uh, anarch, anarchoc, is that how you would say his yeah. name? Okay. Yes, and, I think, yeah. Yeah. And um, this I- explorer writer asks him, you know, can you draw these spirits for me? Hmm. And um, he's very hesitant. At first, he's like, mm, I don't really want to like piss them off, you know. And um, but then he decides to draw them, 
and you reproduce the drawings in the book. I'll, I'll put the drawings in the show notes for the show for anybody who wants to see them. They're, they're intense, <laughs> intense drawings um, of these sort of black, hairy, chimeric, strange beings. And, you know, it almost seemed to me like he was afraid to like fix them, you know, to fix them into a form because he knew that that itself had a sort of power. And in fact, um, the guy that had asked him to do this was like, yeah, I don't really believe in any of this stuff, but like, yeah, I can sense how potent what he just did is, you know? So I was thinking about how magical power comes in some ways from just sort of seizing or, or, or arresting the, the flow of becoming somehow. Yeah, or or um, yeah, doing that in perhaps in a also in a, a kind of self consciously uh, provisional way, in that the yeah you know, the shaman in that that particular exchange is, is extremely wary of um, how he he deals with these beings, and there's kind of a sense that uh, he himself is not fully in control of this situation. I think hence his his wariness about manifesting them through through drawing that this is a, a risky undertaking and it's it's not um it's not the creation of a you know, a visual artwork which is in some sense his to exhibit or do whatever he likes with and then he's reassured by the idea that these will not circulate in in his own vicinity that they'll go off to you know, a museum in Copenhagen which is where, where they currently are um the other thing about that that episode that fascinated me is that the these uh yeah, these these very strikingly, disturbingly strange images are, are themselves, in a way, interstitial beings. They they exist in this form, uh, really by virtue of the the ethnographic encounter between the sky and the uh, the Danish anthropologist who's who's interviewing him. If if, if this hadn't take, taken place, uh, would he ever have undertaken such a um, such a graphic rendering of his his spirit world. Right? It, it seems that that they're images that are quite explicitly born mm. out of this uh, encounter. They're they're not mm. straightforwardly you know, um, transcriptions of, of, of belief. That there's no reason to assume they they would exist uh, if he'd never met um, Knut Rasmussen, the, the um, anthropologist who who records this. Um, so that that was also interesting to me that they're they're one can describe them as as you know, chimeral in the sense that they they seem to have these elements drawn from uh, various different kinds of rather more familiar creatures, but they're they're also um, maybe chimeral in the sense that they um, emerge out of this inter interstitial space of encounter that that that's neither um, yeah a sort of a uh, pristine space of Inuit alterity, but neither is it simply uh, a kind of Western representational space either. It's something else, uh, mm -hmm. which is partly why I, I found them so unsettling and so fascinating. Um, and also that, yeah, they they, they can't be neatly uh, compartmentalised in, in terms of, of um, what's more recently been talked about in... in uh, um, via the, the ontological turn in anthropology about bl belonging to to different realities or to different worlds they they seem to exist again at the a kind of ambiguous interface between mm -hmm. worlds if anything yeah there's just kind of like weird 
sort of flashpoint. I mean, I, maybe this is like too extreme an example, but, you know, it just makes me think about how, when, you know, when we talk about colonial encounters or whatever, we always talk about the, you know, the, the way that the colonizer affects the colonized person. Right. And obviously this is a sort of, lighter moment of that <laughs> exactly what you would call it. but 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 the reverse is present in this you know in a way where it really affects Rasmussen you know to re- look at the look upon these drawings and see them and notice them as potent so I was thinking you know like how how often is that side studied where you know maybe you would study the people who the the effects of setting up the in you know the the Indian residential schools in the U.S., how did that affect the people that set them up? Not to, I mean, not like I'm saying we should pity them more than the people that were forced into the schools and had their culture like destroyed. But as a a study, you know, that sort of two-way kind of flashpoint or portal is a really you know, I think neglected, at least in the, at least in the broader imagination, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a neglected area. And what, is it just, I mean, do you think that that's just because of a sort of one-way politics of of these things, or do you think that there's something else maybe present there? Um, I, I think both, maybe. Um, certainly, uh, looking back to when I was in in graduate school in the 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 1990s, there was a great deal of of discussion. I guess partly in the wake of the the volume writing culture, but but also. Um, under the influence, partly, I guess, of, of um, various strands of post-colonial theory. Uh, there was a lot of discussion on questions of power and representation in anthropological writing, and, and that was certainly, um, to a large extent, part of the, the kind of milieu in which, which I um, was a PhD student. Um, and obviously, there, there's a hugely um, important set of issues there. Uh, but I, I think the, yeah, uh, there's a danger that that comes to subsume everything, that, that, that all that's at stake in these moments is some sort of um, uh, hierarchical power relationship whereby the ostensibly uh, unfamiliar is, is rendered into the same and that that's all that's going on. Um, and I think it's important even while acknowledging that, to insist that the, there's something that's that's not reducible to that, that's not wholly explicable uh, in those terms, that there are moments, I think, throughout the history of anthropology where um, the, the Western, usually Western observers' sense of what might count as reality is, is in some way shaken or put into question in a way that that allows something to emerge that's not simply um, and uh, not necessarily even a a, um, a kind of manifestation of something that, that belongs wholly to another world, but something that that belongs to that threshold, to that 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 zone of in betweenness. Um, and I yeah, sometimes yeah. thought, yeah, maybe that's that's actually what anthropology is really about. It's <laughs> it's trying trying to um, uh, explore or, or play with or, or amplify the the possibilities of, of that that zone and and one of the obviously i think the the kinds of critiques of of um anthropological representation that were were very current in my uh graduate school days are, are 
important in, in flagging some of the dangers that are always attendant upon that. But I, I, um, I think it would be a yeah, it would be a very very bad thing if the effort were to be simply abandoned on on those grounds. So, right. yeah, I, I I think there there's there's something going on there that that can't be um, adequately framed in terms of uh, a certain version of what the the politics of the encounter might be. That there's 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 something that that um, can at least potentially exceed that, and that one can uh, catch glimpses of in you know, accounts like. Knut Rasmussen's writings on the Arctic, which are very, very yeah, traditional mm-hmm. early 20th century anthropology, uh, stylistically, methodologically, and so forth. Well, right. I mean, because it's like if there's, if it's just a one way encounter or whatever, uh, then, you know, the colonizer or the people in power are never subject to any change at all. And it becomes this sort of monolithic, inescapable thing that always has the same kind of blunt force that will never ever be dissolvable never changeable never whatever and we actually treat that as the place where i mean maybe maybe it's unfortunately it's a little foucault kind of thing where it's like you you end up treating that as the kind of uh um i don't know like the 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 water that's coming forth to create everything is just power dynamics and it only has this one sort of unchanging nature where i think really like you're challenging that and again i think you know deleuze is challenging deleuze and guattari are challenging that too where you know foucault who did write about power in, in that way a little bit he said of deleuze and guattari like i've never met people who hated power this much, you know, they just hate it. And and par- part of that, I think, is because of that sort of shifting ground that they align with, with what you're saying. But it's also, you know, just to sort of go back to this magic thing, you bring up, I never can say her name right, but I think it's like Jean Favre-Sada. Is that how you oh, say Oh, Favre-Sada, yes. Fa- yes. Favre-Sada, okay. Um, but, you know, she did this study on sort of de-witchers and witchcraft um, in rural France. And, you know, you you point out um, that she thought, okay, I could I could just sort of go in and have this, you know, like I can just use language, you know, the way I've always used it academically or whatever. But she found that like actually, a lot of the words, you know, in fact, she even called her book deadly words, right? But she found like every sort of word is like, you know, kind of a landmine. Be careful what you say, how you say it, um, how it's pronounced, intonation, the context, all that kind of stuff. And um, so again, I was thinking about how these kinds of these, these vessels, like maybe language or whatever, the words, the context, they become magical by sort of fixing something in a way. But, but before you say maybe anything about that, I just want to say that I was thinking about how, (laughs) because of the academic work I'm doing here, when I talk to people about supernatural and paranormal encounters here in Ireland, um, I was thinking about how, um, <laughs> how like talking to people, they might feel sort of unsafe, even kind of uttering certain things or take me back to certain spots or whatever. And I thought about how I was going to deal with that, with getting ethics approval for what I was, <laughs> what I was doing. <laughs> so I thought, well, this will be a really weird thing for the ethics committee to sign off on or approve of where like, if I say, look, Yes, if I go to an Irish 
fishing community and there's still some people that are kind of old enough to be in this tradition or or maybe newer people that are embedded in this tradition where you're not supposed to say the name of a land animal on the boat or you're not supposed to bring up fairies or whatever like actually you can cast that aside by saying cold iron cold iron cold iron three times right it's a sort of banishing which is related to the archangel michael which is very interesting sort of iron but but anyway I was thinking if I put that in the ethics committee thing, like if I said, don't worry, <laughs> when I freak when I freak people out by asking them to talk about these things and trying to see their effects, I'll say the banishing words so you don't have to worry about it. Then like it would kind of force the ethics committee to implicitly accept the existence of magic in like the official school record <laughs> and the existence of fairies in the other world in the official school record. So I was hoping to maybe do that. <laughs> But yeah, but, that's that. Well, I think yeah, ethics committees are yeah. I guess people like Rasmussen never had to worry about stuff like that. Okay, you got somewhat envious of. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is so much uh, in academia that that is invested in a certain notion of of words as as not powerful in that way, as as, as not materi- materially consequential and, and efficacious but but simply informational and um yeah I, I think it would actually be interesting I think to to maybe think more about the extent to which discussions of anthropological ethics are, are invested in that that mm. notion and, and mm. to that extent are, are maybe not capable of of getting a purchase on on certain kinds of of situations of encounter where where precisely that character of, of words might be what's at stake. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly I thought, yeah, Fabre Sardis book I, is, a, is a, a brilliant example of that as someone who who goes into the field with this very um, conventionally academic understanding of, of um, you know, the language of description and analysis and, and is, is forced to um, deal with the fact that for the people she's talking with what words can 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 fuck you up lethally in in some cases uh <laughs> and that that's something she has to negotiate in order to um just in order to get people to talk to her at all it's not until she's identified as a potential unwitcher and, and drawn into um this um strange world of, of rural witchcraft that that people begin to um share confidences with her but only to the extent that she's no longer looking in from outside and that that there's um a sort of tacit agreement it seems that that words allow for her something more other than a a vehicle of uh, of information Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. actually uh, i've I've sometimes seen a, a kind of um affinity between the uh, the shaman's drawings that that Rasmussen reproduces, and these wonderfully weird diagrams that occupy the latter part of Deadly Words, where mm. she's trying to diagram how uh, magical force um, plays out in the the context of a, you know, a magical attack or the the attempt to defend oneself against it. Um, where again, it's it's almost a, an attempt to draw. It's a kind of physics diagram of magical force, almost, <laughs> which which doesn't, um, which entirely suspends questions of of um, you know what does this mean, what what is its social significance, its social function, or whatever. For the looking at the diagram, you kind of have to accept, at least provisionally, the the reality of what's uh, 
what's being referenced. Um, so yeah, I've always, um, I, I remember I taught that wow. book in a, um, a graduate seminar a few years ago, and a couple of the students were really freaked out by the diagrams. They thought they, <laughs> they were insane, that there, there was something really disturbing about them. But is, <laughs> and, and so, they, they, accused, they accused me of only liking them because they were insane. Uh, <laughs> well, that, as if that's yeah. not a great reason to like something. <clears throat> but, I, but I also think like, Right. Like they wouldn't object to, I mean, maybe because it was mm. like, like too jargony or something, but they wouldn't object to like Lacan's equation or like mm. Badu's equations or something mm. like that. But really they're naming not exactly the same kind of thing, but they're doing sort of similar mm. mapping onto the reality of the power of, you know, the unconscious mm. and words and language and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, but you put, you put this witchcraft word around it, you know? Yes. And, yeah. and, and suddenly that actually imbues the diagram with the power as well, which is mm. weird. Yeah. 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 Whereas in, in something like Badur, there are the, the verbal trappings of, of philosophical logic, which somehow yeah, maybe confer a kind of acceptability or respectability that, that a, a diagram of magical force doesn't possess or can't possess. Right. And you're, you're reminding me too, like when I was teaching at University of Massachusetts, I remember I went into class one day and I just wrote, you know, uh, on the board, you know, everybody, all the students had gotten in the room and I just wrote on the board, like, everybody put your heads down when your heads are down, we'll start class. And everybody put their heads down. And I remember like the first time I did, I was like, holy shit, this is fucking weird. You know, <laughs> and I was like, and everybody did it. And I was like, and I just, I looked at them and I was like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and they, and then we just talked about it, the whole class, you know, what had happened, but it resurfaces in your book. There's, um, where is it? There's this uh, thing where you're talking about um, Bergson and then Deleuze again, but like this concept of fabulation <laughs> where I think it's the quote is, um, yeah, the creation of fictions that were sufficiently intense and persuasive to produce real effects, right? And so I'm thinking about that now, that time with the blackboard. I know it's not quite what he's getting at, but it, you know, intersects with it where it's like, um, you know, and and this thing about the, you know, the magic diagrams, are they in and of themselves impressing something? Or is it because you add this extra piece of the figure, the witch or the the witch or the uh, adjunct instructor or whatever, you know, whatever horrible person you want to put up there, but uh, frightening, magical, amazing person that you want to put up there in, in alignment with the words um, or, or, or can they, can they, uh, can they expose the being and the power without that does that happen i mean i suppose it does sometimes but i'm trying to think of examples uh where it might but do you see what i mean or do you see what i'm getting at there that that it's so, also, it's the it's the diagram plus presence of somebody yeah um yeah i think a lot of um well the, the case of the diagrams is it the it's more the um it's the diagram and the idiom of witchcraft coming together. It seems to me in a way that's, that's uh, to what extent it's um, 
so that seems like the, the, the part of the book where Fabre Sada, the ethnographer, is is less is least visibly present. Right? She, she's right. she's very much a, a presence in her her verbal account. I meant the of, figure of the witch, not necessarily oh, right, the, not yeah, the figure the, of the anthropologist. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think there is there's a kind of um, yeah, there's a kind of conjuration of presence through fabulation. I think. Um, not sure if it's necessarily the presence of of something that was there before, or that that that's something that's that's generated through the act of of fabulation itself. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think. Um, well, I guess one of the things I'm interested in the book is that that again, this isn't simply a um, a, a human reshaping of reality. It's a kind of um, reshaping of a re- of reality that's made possible through a kind of practiced alignment with, with various kinds of, uh, of other than human world shaping forces. Um, <laughs> and that that's kind of what fabulation is to me in, in a sense. Um, so in that sense, yeah, it, it's, um, the witch could be something like that. And you as the, yeah, the <laughs> instructor or a, a yeah, maybe it's it's um yeah, I mean I would I would certainly say your 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 presence in the, the classroom seems like it was it was some sort of factor right. there. Although although it arguably your yeah, the na- the nature of your presence for the students was maybe transformed by by seeing you uh, <laughs> right. uh inscribe this. So you know, you were no longer what they 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 took you to be previously. Yeah, well, that uh, yeah, it's, it's funny you're bringing that up because the first class I ever taught, I mean, I looked really, I mean, I was younger, but I looked really young. And so I just sat in the front row, like for the first five minutes, and the students all kind of like looked around. And then I stood up and started teaching, which was like part of, I mean, let's teach an English composition class. So really, none of these things were appropriate at all. But I did, but I did like was playing this sort of like trickster role. So you're right. It's like, you're not that, oh, now you're that. Mm. But it was very striking how quickly the role was just absorbed just from the position of standing in front of the room or writing the thing on the board or whatever it was, you know? So it's it's interesting how quickly that 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 transfer happens. But I'm I'm also thinking about like now, again, with this kind of fixing things or the way that they're fixed, the way that they're seized, the kind of power they have, fabulation, all of that was, you know, this thing that you're writing about in the event and its terrors about the way the Irish state and also the international, <laughs> uh, international uh, globalized state, I don't know what you want to call that, but anyway, the empire, if we want to use that term, um, was seizing the trauma of uh, the famine. Mm-hmm. So like this, <laughs> it's really like I wrote it in my notes when I was reading your book, I just wrote fuck over that part because it's so harsh <laughs> where, but true where you're like, look, this idea of national trauma, like mm-hmm. you keep coming to national trauma mm-hmm. of the famine here in Ireland and the way that that diffuses and who that ends up mm-hmm. serving, like who owns the trauma then. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, and, and the way that that gets turned into um, look, you're the whole nation was traumatized as a people by the famine. Let's talk about it with Bill Clinton. Let's talk about it with Tony Blair, whomever else. And let's have it come out on the world stage as this trauma that ends up being actually a legitimate, a legitimizing 
kind of building block or even cornerstone in the identity of the modernized, globalized, neoliberal state, you know, the self-legitimization of the modernizing state. But but how would you how would you have <laughs> this is a really unfair question, Stuart, but how would you have the famine go and permeate culture if not that? Oh. See what I mean? <laughs> like if it's if it's hmm. not to be seized by the state. Is it just to be sort of um, absorbed by a kind of memory and then moved forward from like, what, like, is it just not to be monumentalized? Like, how does it, how does it not become the tool of the state, you know, without, without that or or the, or the empire? Um, Yeah. I mean, obviously the moment in which I was doing research for, um, what became the event and its terrors was around about the, the 150th anniversary, 19, 1995, 97. And, and there was, it was very, very striking at the time that there was um, vastly more academic and, and media attention being being paid to uh, that, that period in Irish history than had happened, say, um, at the 100th anniversary. And that this seemed to have something to do with um staking out a certain kind of vision of of uh ireland as as um yeah, taking its place among the 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 more prosperous uh, nations of the world and being a yeah, a bestower rather than a recipient of charity and and so forth um i don't know that there's um yeah maybe i it's the wrong question to ask what how could one avoid that? Given it, it, it happened, so it's it's done. Um, so I'd, I'd be more interested in what 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 escapes that, or what what escaped that at the time, and continues right, right, to right. escape that. Um, and yeah, I think there are um, there are certain kinds of of more formal memorializations that I, I think are inevitably going to to feed into that project but i'm not sure that any um memorialization of the 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 famine if if famine is the right word which again is a yeah part of (laughs) um, the history of of this of that that moment um yeah i mean i i talked a little bit in the event and its terrors about what seemed to be rather more um wayward and uh, unstable uh, practices of of uh, memory and commemoration and things like um, hungry grass. This is for, which is is not associated exclusively with with uh, the famine by any means, but refers to a, a, a patch of grass where a, um, either a, a person has has died or, whether, or been buried, um, or somebody has where a corpse has first touched the ground before being buried elsewhere. Uh, and in a lot of stories uh, collected by the Irish Folklore Commission about the the famine years, it's associated specifically with where a corpse has fallen mouth downwards, and the mouth has uh, touched the the ground first. And, and then when somebody touches that grass, they yeah, they're smitten by stricken. the the hunger that that's stricken by stricken by the hunger that that killed the person who who died there. Um, so yeah, I, I I was I was very intrigued by that as a um, this this much more um, much less containable uh, mm-hmm. um, 
eruption of the the past into the present. It was it was something that and, and something that, that that seemed to happen via uh, via tactility, via this the sort of transmission of of something from uh, the body, <laughs> either the dead person buried there or the body that had touched the ground there that could still uh, afflict someone walking over the same patch of ground uh, years later. Um, yeah, and there were other things that I, I like the the um, uh, chance rediscovery of of, uh, of famine burials along the, the shoreline and in parts of Mayo and elsewhere, where it, it seemed again the, the the dead were kind of pushing their way into the present <laughs> in ways that were not um, assimilable, read, or readily assimilable to some sort of state-sponsored project of uh, of commemoration. Uh, so yeah, I I, I would be. <clears throat> Again, I, I I think I wasn't quite sure where to go with this at the time when I wrote the event and its terrors. But yeah, I, I I would I would be I guess increasingly interested in thinking about uh, practices of writing or of audiovisual presentation that that would somehow linger with these more um, wayward, eruptive manifestations and and try to to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, give some kind of uh, communicable um, presence to those. Um, yeah, which again the... is maybe maybe one could think about fabulation in those terms that I, oh. I think the um, certainly most um, most forms of, of at least human creativity, it seems to me, involve some sort of engagement with the dead, very, very broadly conceived. Um, huh. Yeah, it, well, that's... It, Perfect, because I wanted to talk about the dead like quite a bit. You know, you you have this uh, in the event and its terrors. Look, for me, it was like I was just so happy that you <laughs> wrote this because it's something that is really frustratingly lacking in academia in general. Where you write, um, well, first you're writing about, uh, I think Indian farmer protests, mm-hmm. and you're 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 citing some other thinkers here, but in your words, you say, you know, because, because there was some sort of spiritual, there, there's spiritual contours, aspects and motivations to some of these protests. And, you know, whereas I think academics and maybe, you know, secular, well, (laughs) why am I even adding that? Like Marxist leftists in, in general, um, might sympathize with the sort of workerism of these movements, you know, you write uh, what appears to remain inadmissible, even to the most democratically minded historian, is not only the suggestion that supernatural beings might have any direct influence as historical agents in human affairs. And then I like your aside here, although one is likely to wait a long time for an academic history couched in such terms, <laughs> but also the possibility that such an unhistorical rendering of events might carry its own explanatory power capable of instructing or modifying the procedure of historical or anthropological inquiry. And it's it, it's really important now in, a, in its own way too, because of the ways in which those kinds of narratives where some sort of spiritual force, power, supernatural beings, all that would, would render some explanatory power are actually being now cast into the one version of it that took the popular stage ever, which was like QAnon shit, right? <laughs> like, or, or in the past is like satanic panic, right? Although satanic panic had sort of widespread acceptance in a way that 
the QAnon movement didn't, where like, it's just <laughs> at once, like, I don't obviously don't have anything in common or agree with QAnon people, but I, well, I'm sure I have some things in common with them, but I don't agree with it. <laughs> I don't agree with them <laughs> ethically, morally, or or their analysis. But I think that like, you know, there's this casting of them as, okay, this is what happens when you bring the supernatural, mm. the ghostly, mm. you know, whatever into your, the witchcraft, into your political yeah. analysis. But of course, if we look through history, of course it's, you know, I mean, even, <laughs> even Kamala Harris, right. Like has mm. this, um, and I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to drag you into any conspiracy thing. This was part, this was in mainstream news outlets where she, you know, one of her aides was like part of the secret Masonic police force that got arrested. There was this big scandal, right? The Reagans consulted with astrologers, obviously, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, the Russian government and Alexander Dugan and all that kind of mm. shit. Like you can look at these aspects, these flows coming in. Now, I wouldn't determine those as the only things that were constituting the political framework, um, nor the, the the resistance that people give. Even if you just look at liberation theology, if you want to take like the most acceptable example to us, but it, it is in some ways not permitted to be a current or a force in the way we analyze history. It's so baffling to me. And there are some places which are exempt, of course, right? Um, or some instances or sites. So, you know, here, I'm sure you know about this because I think you you were probably living here when this happened, but there was the uh, the National Roads, the NRA, which is a different thing in Ireland, mm. the Roads Association yeah. <laughs> in Ireland that was building this massive road, I think through County Clare and had mm. to reroute the whole thing, which cost like a shit ton of money because people were protesting that it was going through a ferry fort and ferry tree. Oh, yes, yes, sorry about right? this, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So in some places there is still this acceptance of the kind of weaving in of that significance, of that presence, but certainly when we move into academia it's it's not quite so much let me say one more thing and then i'll i'll shut up for a second but but the um you know it's interesting to me that there's this kind of resurgence in academia over the last 10 15 years of interest in alchemy magic which is that kind of stuff and I think that some of it is the, it's almost like just classic return of the repressed sort of thing where, you know, you have basically a hierarchical, almost like secret society structure of initiation for people getting PhDs mm. to be, you know, brought into a certain kind mm. of society, but not allowed to talk about spiritual things. And so then now people are like, oh, I bring back that as my object of study, even though I might not take it seriously, just as sort of like a phenomena that I'll look at, whatever. Um, so I think all of that is to say the ways in which that the, the other crowd has been crowded out, you know, the, the mm. way that these beings, these currents and these significant presences have been pushed out of inquiry. So <laughs> I want to talk about the dead more specifically in relation to that, but maybe we can just take it from there and I'll stand back and let you talk about that for a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad you, you mentioned. Uh, yeah. I think the, the, passage you were referring to in the event of its terrors was quoting um Dipesh Chakrabarti uh, in uh 
yeah, provincializing Europe, where he's he's talking about uh, the claim that a uh, a god had had played a, an active role in a in a um, a peasant rising, uh, and how historians have been yeah, perennially unwilling to to take on board such a claim. Um, yeah, I was thinking in terms of the way in which uh, certainly academics or, or certain sections of the media respond to something like QAnon. Um, and this sense that this this is this is something that shouldn't be in politics, that it's the result of an illegitimate intrusion of, of all this irrational supernatural stuff. Um in a way, I, I almost frame it as as not that, but it's the something like QAnon is partly the result of the expulsion from academic and mainstream media discourse of any serious consideration of what one might call the the supernatural, the ghostly, or whatever, and that that um, when that happens, you have all these commentators who are really kind of um, backed into a corner of repudiating um, both QAnon and you know, the Indian Rising that, that Chakrabarti talks about as instances of the same thing and have no vocabulary for differentiating between them, right? It, it, it's, they're both simply instances of, of a, um, uh, usually a, what's deemed to be a, um, yeah, archaic investment in, in the Iraq or, uh, rather than, uh, things that yes, do seem to, uh, involve some sort of, uh, engagement with, with powers or presences beyond, uh, the stuff that that many academics usually talk about, but not necessarily in the same way, and not to license anything like the same kind of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and by simply uh, banishing any consideration of the, the supernatural, for want of a better word, um, from academic discussion, or by always trying to reduce it to to something else, to social relationships, or or whatever, or some some <laughs> notion of of uh, you know, serving a function external to itself, what one is left with um, no means of talking about this, no means of of, of uh, saying this this can serve positive emancipatory functions or deeply disturbingly reactionary ones, and how do we begin to get a handle on on which is which? Right. It, it, it seems that a lot of um, academic discourse has left itself bereft of any means of doing that, which I, I think is a, a huge, uh, huge problem. Um, so. Yeah, can I can I just say something about hmm. that? So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think it's something that I think about a lot, and I think that anthropologists, if they wanted to take it up, would be really good at it, which is in some senses being the de-witcher or the unwitcher figures in a sort of public realm. So you could go and you could be able to distinguish like, okay, this spiritual current, like this is what people are talking about in this way in QAnon, but it does not actually relate to these agrarian protests. Like, you know, I mean, something I've had to do like a whole bunch of times, especially since the beginning of the year, but I've had to do it like once a year is sort of like, talk to people about the history around, you know, Rudolf Steiner and the anthroposophical movement and be like, no, this really has, is not about, is not about Nazism. <laughs> like it's really like, it's completely antithetical to it actually, but I can see why some people would say these things overlap. Um, but like the capability and the training for that is it, it's, it's a lost 
you know, as much as I agree with you and Jason Storm, who was on the show before, that there was that there is no sort of that the myth of disenchantment is kind of an overblown thing, or that that disenchantment is an overblown thing that's a you know mythic, but rather there still is a kind of professional or intellectual class or like a group of workers that have been disappeared from you know, having really a public voice, which is to be able to come out and sort of distinguish between these things. And so now, you know, um, it's like someone could say in, in, in anthropology, <laughs> I've made this joke and it's pissed off some people in my department, but I'm just going to make it again. <laughs> anyway, but it's like, someone could be like, you know, like I'm taking the story from what color is the sacred by Michael Tausig, where it's like, you know, the you know i i was i was on a beach with you know this is a native american speaking i was on a beach and i had you know i was passed out and this wolf came up and vomited foam on me and then said now you are protected from smallpox you know we're here to help you and the anthropologist will say hmm what does this tell us about kinship structure you know and it's like <laughs> What I can we talk about the vomiting talking wolf? Like what the fuck are we talking about here? Right? It's this constant evasion, and I'm not saying that the kinship structure question might not be valuable or interesting, but the 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 constant evasion that leaves both you know anthropology and other other disciplines, not just anthropology exclusively, but anthropology is the one that's in the closest contact with magic, except maybe theology, where you leaving them, you know, uh, unable to actually take this really vital public role and also, you know, giving more strength to people that don't take the public role so that you just have pundits talking about, mm. you know, well, this is, you know, all uh, Marion Williamson must be a Nazi because someone with, you know, horns, you know, stormed the Capitol building, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, certainly uh, in terms of, yeah, a kind of, a public role. It's, it, it seems to me that might actually be a much more effective uh, rejoinder to uh, someone like Trump or, or Boris Johnson back in my home country mm. than the assiduous fact checking. That, 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 that seems to me to, to mm. not be the, the most effective way to, to confront uh, these folks and, and doesn't really, in a lot of ways, address the, the, the basis of their, uh, of their appeal. Um, yeah, and I, I, I certainly, um, I certainly think that as far as uh, the, the notion of disenchantment goes, uh, yeah, one can one can point to the wider world uh, and say, no, it didn't happen. Look, um, and I think in some ways anthropology has, has played a valuable role in, in documenting that. Um, but it does seem to be a notion that is still extraordinarily uh, mm. deeply rooted in a, at least one section of, of the, the population, namely uh, academia. Uh, and yeah, this, this extraordinary uh, simultaneous invocation of subject matters like magic, and then this kind of tiptoeing around them. It's, it's, you know, there's, there's somebody, you know, there's a wolf vomiting and there's somebody turning into a bear or something, but we're going to talk about kinship and social relationships and power and something else. Uh, we'll, we'll gesture towards this stuff being there, but we're not, we're not going to jump into it. Um, I mean, in some ways I, I think uh, what's been, called the the ontological turn in 
anthropology, to which I, I feel I have a somewhat ambivalent relationship, has, has, uh, has taken a step towards doing that in the sense that, that um, it aspires to, to take seriously, in one of their favourite phrases, um, the fact that, that uh, people anthropologists engage with are making substantive claims about the nature of reality and that they're to repackage those as as instances of belief is 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 doing a a certain kind of of violence to them. I, although I, I sometimes feel in some of the ontological turn literature, there's again a kind of a di- slightly different kind of containment operation happening in that this gets uh, framed as a yeah, in effect, a kind of philosophical problem, uh, mm-hmm. a matter of the the reformulation of concepts, or whatever. Um, and again, I'm uh, I'm slightly suspicious of that, particularly given that the the point of reference is is usually something like myth in, in non Western societies, um, <laughs> and that this can be thought of as a you know, a kind of philosophy or whatever, or something akin to philosophy. Um, I like always this is something I talk about a little bit in, in fictionalizing anthropology, but I'm, I'm partly suspicious of that simply because one of the the founding gestures of, of what is arguably the kind of dominant tradition of Western philosophy is this differentiation of, of logos from mythos, right? This, this partitioning of uh, philosophy from, from uh, uh, the order of, uh, of myth. So what does it then mean to come mm-hmm. along in the early 21st century and try to engage with, with myth as philosophy? Um, so I guess, yeah, that's, that's, so you're right. You're thinking about the myth of myth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like uh, I, I, there's something that I, I'm deeply sympathetic with, in, in at least a lot of the ontological turn mm. literature, but also a, a kind of um, hesitancy about what seems almost a, yeah a sort of philosophy envy sometimes that's that's playing out there and a. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, over readiness to um, mm. articulate um, questions of difference in terms of philosophical conceptuality that that maybe needs to be uh, maybe needs to be thought more about. Yeah. Well. So actually, this will take mm. us sort of into our mm. like maybe contentious mm. point, or we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> See where it goes. Just don't hang up, Stuart. We'll see how it goes. But I think like, you know, and maybe I'm just wrong in interpreting this, but I just, I think, you know, one of the things that I, so I agree with you where I feel the, the ontological turn where anthropologists are making claims about reality and theories of worlds and that sort of stuff where it's, yeah, there's something I like about it. Like, I think at least, you know, like at least be, at least this is a kind of boldness, you know, and it's an exciting, enthusiastic, um, like stepping into the role of like, wow, when I look at human beings, like I really discover quite a bit, you know, more than just how they, this will piss some people off, but just how they like sew a purse or, you know, whatever, (laughs) whatever it is. Right. (laughs) But, but I think, you know, the thing for me that I get a little frustrated with is, it's almost, it only goes so far and you're pointing out one place where it only goes so far, but then I wonder, cause it seems like you have these places where you stop too. And I think that that's where I'm, I'm interested in asking you about, right? Because there still seems to be a commitment to certain 
ontological, like fixed concepts, especially in so much as they relate to science and scientific inquiry, mm -hmm. evolution, linear time, climate change, these kinds of things. And, you know, obviously anthropology, you know, for people that don't know this, I don't know, but like anthropology is probably the most critical discipline of environmentalism in a lot of ways, but it always, it also ends up sort of reinscribing like its own version of that kind of environmentalism with the Anthropocene and all that kind of stuff into its own language. But it seems like I sometimes was just sort of wondering this in reading your work that it's like you, you're presenting this completely, I mean, it's really radical and <laughs> really intense. So I hope everybody reads, reads Fictionalizing Anthropology uh, uh, and your other book, but it, it's like, re, you know, re, reworking of <laughs> reality in this way, but it also, it also sort of just like leaves some of these things in, which I thought well, if I if I would take the the rest of it seriously, I actually would be, you know, um, scattering those apart, you know, as well. I would be ta taking those apart and 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 recombinating, metamorphosing them, and seeing what else came out. And so I was just wondering if you found your, I mean, is that just an ethical move? Is it a moral choice? Like, why are you stopping in the places that you stop? Um, I think. The reason I did that in fictionalizing anthropology, um, which again, I, I think eventually it's terrors belong. It was a, a, an earlier and somewhat different me who wrote that book. Uh -huh. So I'm, I'm less um, concerned about why I did certain things then. But um, bring up yeah, I, I, Sorry. <laughs> I think there was, um, looking back on, on, uh, the, you know, a couple of years since, since fictionalizing anthropology came out, I, I, I think I was, um, yeah, I, I, it does strike me. I was, I was preoccupied with with making some kind of grand statement. Um, in a way, maybe I wouldn't want to now, having done that. So yeah, maybe it was just like a, a big turd I needed to shit out or something. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, 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 I was very conscious of trying at least at times to stay within a, a um a certain kind of academic theoretical language at least some of the time but then to to depart from that and and um return to it um i mean i think i i the book kind of ends i think by in some ways um relinquishing that um or yeah, uh, suggesting that the, there are other um, possibilities of, of uh, playing with some of these things that, that are maybe not not as as uh, as consistently actualized in, in the book as as they could be elsewhere. Uh, I mean, the book kind of has two endings. There's this sort of ending of of me going out looking for the. The, the northern lights in the sky and not finding them. And then there's a, a kind of um, coda ending featuring a, um, a Hong Kong-based performance artist called Frog King, or Kwok Bang Ho, to give him his, his alternate name. Um, and he's actually someone I'm, I'm writing more about uh, currently. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted to, I think, through both of those to sort of gesture um towards um the a kind of beyond of 
uh, certain kinds of of academic knowing, uh, and also to to different different sorts of possibilities of, of engagement. Um, and there is a place I think where I do that most conspicuously, which is in a um, a volume called Crumpled Paper Boat Experiments mm -hmm. in, in Ethnographic Writing that I, I uh, co-edited with my friend Anand Pandian. And my contribu contribution to that is, is a poem called Sea, uh, which is a, a sort of collage and various other things, partly drawing on, on um, sources I, I'd used in, in perhaps more, more conventionally academic ways in, in um, uh, other things I'd written. Um, but also trying to use poetry to, to um, conjure a, a different kind of time space of, of virtual coexistence and metamorphosis and pasts and presents interfering with one another in, in various kinds of ways that was rather different from, from anything that one could do even in you know, self-consciously experimental academic prose. Um, but yeah, I, I I think I was I did in some ways have the intention in in fictionalizing anthropology of 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 leaving a a recognizable footprint for for certain kinds of audiences in the hope that I yeah it could um, it could be the beginning of a of a journey to to something else. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I I I I would certainly absolutely take your point and it, 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 it but I, I you know the, 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 I, I'm I'm still <laughs> still alive and, and still uh, still changing so um, I would hope that um, yeah if you watch this space and you may see uh, more, uh, well, <laughs> more wayward things coming out of it <laughs> no I mean I so I just actually just a question I mean it's just you know so there's so much on the dead in 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 um in the event of service and fictionalizing anthropology um <clears throat> where you know i sometimes think when people in general they're reformulating the relationship of the dead to us right and it's like i mean it, we, we can find that in obvious ways like if you read the book of somebody who's dead you're connecting the realm of the living and the dead right you know um or uh we could think of it in less obvious ways or whatever in, in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the presence of a ghost or someone sort of guiding your hand or whatever. And I just, sometimes I think, you know, a lot of people do that and then they don't accept the consequences of that in their writing. I'm not saying you do this, but it did, you know, sort of come up in the last comment I made just to see how you would respond. <laughs> but like, you know, if the dead are not dead, if the dead remain in the constitutive forces of whatever that relate to us, relate to who we are, and it should rearrange how we approach the world, you know, ethically mm -hmm. and, and morally. And it might change a lot. You know, I, I've found myself really fascinated with the fact that extinction, for example, is like a relatively new concept, right? And, you know, it, and that there was this whole history where people just did not believe that animals could go extinct ever. It was, you know, 6,000 
6,000 years ago, the world was created. It's exactly how it is then. All the same species here, all that kind of stuff. Dinosaur bones haven't, and woolly mammoth bones haven't been consistently discovered. There's not even necessarily the same sort of concept in most indigenous cultures, actually, either, as far as I know. I mean, there's world destruction narratives, but mm. that's something different. And so, you know, I just think as soon as you begin to introduce when you introduce the concept of extinction, the whole moral landscape, ethical landscape changes. But then if you re if you re-encounter the dead, it should also change it again. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I just sort of um, you know, what does extinction mean in a in a in a world where the mm. dead don't die in mm. the way that we see death? You know, it creates a whole different landscape for us to consider. And so I guess it just those kinds of things were coming up for me as I was reading. And um, it's not even really a critique. It's just sort of like a, a just a point of, um, you know, of wonder and, and sort of wondering how far you go with it and where you decide to just sort of leave it there and be like, yeah, the dead don't die, but I still don't want to die. Or, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the most obvious yeah, yeah. one, right. <laughs> you know, but um, you know, the dead don't die and therefore we have, but there, but we still have the same, social ethical responsibilities <laughs> as if they did, you know, there, there are those kinds of questions for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think there may be different aspects to how one might think of the, the ethical implications of first of all, accepting that the, the dead are still somehow present. I wouldn't say the dead don't die. If, if, if they, if they didn't die, they'd be something other than the dead. It, it, it's, it's, sure, it's, sure. Uh, I just mean in so the common. Me, no, the, you're right. Yeah. But the the important thing in a way for me is is that the <laughs> the presence of the dead that they are they are dead, but mm-hmm. but nonetheless right. present in in some sort of non actual virtual register or whatever. Um, and again, that that seems to me to to speak to something I, I raised at the beginning today of wanting not wanting to think of um change and continuity as 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 radically dichotomous mm-hmm. right? that the the dead uh or an acceptance of the the dead as as present obviously can be thought of as um a certain kind of connection to a past uh so it can be yeah it could be thought of as in terms of a a, a tradition or something like that um but it also seems to me to be uh, the dead or, or the past more generally, perhaps, a, a, is a um, a power of difference, um, that it's something that exceeds and potentially displaces the present or opens the present to uh, possible futures, or unforeseen futures. Right? It, it, it's, it's, again, maybe something that, that, that introduces um, the, the unpredictable, the incalculable. Uh, mm. So that might be one aspect of accepting that the the dead uh, are present. Um, as to yeah, the prospect of extinction um, seems to me that it, it does make a huge difference whether one sees this in in kind of absolute or, or relative um, terms. So whether like somebody like Ray Brasio, one of the Speculist, speculative materialist folks envisions this kind of radical shutdown of the universe, the kind of collapse of all matter into itself, the the end of the very possibility of embodiment, etc. Whether whether you you'll, uh, envisage something as absolute as that, or whether um, extinction is something that that pertains to 
individual species or, or groups of species, uh, in which case, yeah, even if one thinks of, of human extinction, that's not necessarily uh, absolute in terms of a larger picture. Um, and certainly one um, salutary lesson, I think, for me that that uh, that might teach is that the possibility of our world coming to an end in a definitive way um, might nonetheless uh, be generative of, of other kinds of possibilities of existence, that it's not necessarily something that, that is a, um, a definitive ending. That, 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 um, and it may even be necessary for you know, certain kinds of human worlds to end in order for other possibilities of existence to continue to, to flourish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems the, the imagination of that might be something that, that one could articulate with a, uh, a sense of the presence of the dead as something that, that simultaneously connects to a past, but also pushes toward a future in, in ways that, that are not uh, scripted or determined. Yeah. Just to pick up on some of what you were saying, I know like, you know, again, with Deleuze and Guattari in What is Philosophy, I think they write that, um, you know, philosophy's role is to create new concepts, right? And that, you know, the I, I'm wondering then, you know, in terms of what you just said, if there's, is there an imperative to create new concepts? I mean, I know we were talking about the new before and this, but, but is there, is that actually, if, what we do as people when we tell stories, imagine things, whatever is actually uh, part and parcel of the creative combinatory metamorphic mm. force yeah. of things sort of rushing forth constantly, mm. you know, and finding each other and changing each other and m- making each other the same. Is there actually a, you know, imperative to sort of create that pathway and then, and and when that pathway is when that sort of newness is created or that strange combination, mm. is there a kind of uh an imperative for holding it? You know, like I'm thinking about, you know, in the beginning wh- where you write about uh Kirsten Harstrup, you know, seeing mm. one of the Holdu folk, uh, where she's, you know, in a blizzard and I mean, you you transform her from a shepherdess into a into an anthropologist, which is interesting for the reader. But then she sees this figure come out of the snow, and she's like, "Yeah, that was basically, you know, one of the elves or one of the fairies or whatever." And she says, "The real experience of the materialization of the unreal." And so there's this there's this kind of at least for her, you know, there's a newness, there's a new feeling, there's a new combination, this new metamorphic thing that happens, and she tends to it. Right? She's she's really. <laughs> really treated poorly by a lot of people for tending to it and 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 you know making herself or her own life worthy of that you know mm. uh instance that that emergence but so i'm wondering one about is there a kind of tending to it but then also i'm thinking about the way these actually you know what I'm going to tell you a story in a second, but let me stop okay. and, and let you t- sort of take it from there before I overload you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I would, I would certainly see the stories we tell as um, participant in and as, as carrying forward the, the ongoing 
um, production of of the world or of worlds. Uh, and yeah, I would I would see very much an imperative to to do that and to to um, continue to try to tell stories, create concepts, create images, whatever else that that might be conducive to the the production of of uh, more just or more inclusive or or more sustainable worlds or of a um, the possibility of a of a plurality of worlds that can coexist without um, destroying uh, one another. So, um, a lot of a number of anthropologists over recent years have, have had recourse to the, the Zapatista formulation of a, a world into which many worlds will fit. Um, so yeah, what the, the crafting of that might be uh, seems to me to involve uh, the telling of stories, the uh, or other 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 things. Um, and yeah, I, I would see that as a, a matter of some urgency uh, in this moment. Um, and again, it, it seems a more a more um, effective uh, rejoinder to figures like like Trump than simply no no what he said there isn't true no we checked no etc right, that, right. that, um, that there um, there ought to be and this this for me very much would be a a, a collective a collaborative venture um, which again I think would would um, differentiate it from uh, certain incarnations of of the um the new right in us and, and european politics which seems to be very much um a matter of somebody claiming to speak with an authoritative voice i don't think trump supporters are being invited to the to collaborate in the production of new realities they're, they're being presented with something which has already been been formulated and invited to to go along with it um so I think a, a more, yeah, perhaps more democratic, if you will, but certainly more more collectively, collaboratively, relationally uh, conceived version of of fabulation seems to be very important to 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 pitch against that, and and, and perhaps they, they'd be the only thing that one, one can one can uh, field against. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, what's variously called post-truth politics or or whatever. Uh huh. Well, because it's, I mean, it's really hard to do, right? Like, I mean, I think, like, in some ways, what you're talking about is like, <laughs> like a Leninist concept of solidarity, but like, no one was worse at that than Lenin. I mean, yeah. it's fucking horrible <laughs> at it, right? I meant, you know, or like, or like the Hegel thing, where it's like, you know, the right reading I consider at least is like, you don't, um, you don't try to resolve the contradiction, right? Actually, it's the, the sort of interplay, you know, that's really important, but that's really fucking hard to do. That's the big challenge right now is what you're talking about, um, is that people are in communities where they generally feel love, genuinely feel love for the other people that are in that community, but the wall around that community that they've built with the ideology, so they don't have to love anybody else is so thick that even like a love for the other can become or, or, or a love for someone in your community can become a weapon against the other, which is really fucked up, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> so here's the, here's a story that I was going to tell before okay. moving away from all that shit. Um, so I was in the car with my friend who's actually dead now. So this is interesting, but that's an interesting aspect of it too. I'm thinking about it. we were driving at night and 
he was driving and I was in the passenger seat and we're driving through Pennsylvania at night. And I looked out the window and I just like started shaking. And I was like, I was like, Jake, stop, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car. And he's like, what? And I said, I just saw a skeleton walking down the road. What the (laughs) fuck? I was like, turn back. (laughs) And so he turned back and what actually there was, for some reason, there was a very pale white guy wearing a white jacket and white pants and sunglasses. So it looked like he had eye sockets. It was in the middle of the night walking down the street. And the the really fascinating thing for me about that moment was that I just had this kind of like flash realization where it's like, oh, this actually is kind of the portal where the walking skeleton comes through. Like, it's not just that I saw the wrong thing or that I interpreted it Mm. wrong, but actually the possibility of interpreting it in a certain way is actually what makes it possible for it to exist. So I was thinking about that, you know, in relationship to, again, the, um, (laughs) I'm going to say his name again, uh, Anarkuk, you know, doing the trickery, like your, your accounts of shamans doing trickery to, to evoke, you know, the magical effect that people accept and they know that the trickery is there or they don't question if the trickery is there or not. Like, did he save somebody from a spirit or is he just smearing blood on himself from a seal, you know, and and saying that he did or, or whatever, that there's this real slippage, you know, these, these slippage points or these portal points or threshold points or whatever you want to call them where the, intense encounter maybe in that fabulation sense again is like actually the possibility for the for the new being to arrive into the world or 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 the old being because i i had already imagined walking skeletons from sinbad movies when i was a kid or something like that you know but you see what i mean it's like should we be like what what's your what's your thought about like just sort of fucking with that portal there because that's also like a magical act you know and and where we align ourselves with that, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly think there are these these moments, these settings, these occasions, whatever, where um, one has a very powerful sense of no longer being able to assume with any certainty that that one is in a single reality. So it's not quite a matter of uh, of crossing over into something else, which would be fully different in some specifiable way, but but of the yeah the guy walking down the street and the possibility of the walking skeleton, and um, it's not that one morphs into the other. It's it's um, maybe a kind of oscillation between the two, but but at least the the. Um, it no longer being possible to say with any certainty, this is just a guy walking down the street, mm-hmm. right? that something else beyond that has, has, uh, has opened up. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think multiplying those moments is, is very important and, and actually maybe more important than, than trying to um, yeah. Hypothesize about other worlds that might lie, lie on the far side mm-hmm. of the, the portal that, that that's sort of the, it's the, the, um, the threshold, the 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 stepping onto the threshold where um the possibility of doing something else opens. And yeah, I, I mean I I think anthropology in some ways 
has an archive of of such moments. I mean, there there's sometimes moments that that anthropologists themselves have been um, loath to to admit to or to to embrace, but they're they're there. I think, and um, yeah, I mean that that to me would would be if I had to justify the <laughs> the existence of, of of anthropology as a discipline. I think that that's actually one of the things I would point to. <laughs> I love I love that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> if you had to justify things. Yeah. I mean, if I did, if anyone yeah. asked me. <laughs> it would only be beyond departmental mm. funding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love for you to say mm. that in the funding mm. meeting, though. Like, look, I'm just trying to make the skeleton, walking skeletons a real <laughs> thing. That's all. Like, don't you think we deserve a shot at that? But mm. I think that there is like a, there's a decision point, you know, like I, I remember, um, I lived with my friend. He's been on the show a bunch of times. This guy, Peter Rollins, who's a theologian. And I remember I was just talking to him about Cyprus, like constantly. I I had heard about this like occultist healer who lived in Cyprus and was really interested in him. And I was reading about him and I just kept thinking, I want to learn more about Cyprus. I want to learn more about Cyprus. And then one day I went downstairs and there was a book sitting on my bookshelf that was never there before about Cyprus. And I was like, what? the fuck i did not buy this book right <laughs> and i and i remember thinking well i guess peter could have put this here like i don't know and then at a certain point i just decided against that i just made the decision that mm. no that the book had appeared mm. and that i wasn't going to investigate any further and in, and i knew in some way that that made me in the classic psychoanalytic sense psychotic like or the lacanian psychoanalytic mm. sense psychotic like that i had ref- I'd refused the imposition of the rules and authority <laughs> of the sort of world. And then I decided, no, this is it. Right. But I, but it seemed to me to be a better way to live ultimately um, to just take that book and say, but this is it. Like I, I talked about it and it appeared and I don't know why, but it was a gift to me. And after all, if Peter had told me, I, I, I bought the book and I put it here I could have simply said in my head, like, ah, see, that's that's how everything was rearranged so that this book could be here, like sort of retroactively. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, it, it, that that's just the mechanism for for the book ending up for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've um, had moments like that. Um, actually, one that very much contributed to to the last book was my involvement with this. Um, Experimental Art Festival in Orkney, Pape Gyro Nights, that I, mm-hmm. I um, participated in, wrote about. Um, yeah, that, that my involvement in that was was a, a, a bizarrely chance encounter. I'd, I'd been travelling in, in Orkney and was due to catch the, um, the late night ferry back to Aberdeen and had a few hours to kill, so I, I just some reason decided I would I wanted Chinese food in Orkney so I went to the the one Chinese restaurant in, I think in the whole of, of the uh, Orkney archipelago um, <laughs> and as I was going in I spotted this flyer inside the door for uh, Pape Gyro Nights Art Festival and for some reason I just thought oh, this this it looked very unlike anything at any other um, arts event I'd, I'd ever um, seen in Orkney, partly because I think a lot of regional arts funding in Britain tends to be a bit sort of arts and craftsy, uh, but then this this was very much not that. Um, 
but yeah, yeah. it was it was uh i i just became for some reason this made an incredibly powerful impression upon me and i <laughs> i took down the details and then when i i got back to um edinburgh where i was spending the year a sabbatical year i i looked it up and just okay i'm gonna go to this i'm gonna do this and yeah i think the the next yeah um i guess basically the next decade of my life was was very different as a result of of doing that mm -hmm. um but it yeah it was it was this very unexpected unsolicited momentary encounter with something that for some reason made a very mm. profound impression on me and left me with a, an immediate sense that I um if I follow up on this something will come of it something will something will happen mm. yeah because you're you're making me think about like you know the the sort of counter example is like you know my friend who had been part of this magical order in the UK for like years and years and years. And he was reaching this certain level of initiation and he was really sort of frustrated. And so he was, he was walking around San Francisco at night and he said, look, spirits, if you're there, give me a sign. And then he turned the corner and the sign from a, from a wine shop had fallen down and it, there was a sign literally at his feet that said spirits. <laughs> yeah. It said spirits on it, like right in front of him. And um, so I think there are these, I call that a counter example. Cause I think there are these instances when we can't deny it, like where it's like, fuck, okay. Like that's just not, yeah. that's too intense. But I think, you know, rather than, you know, we're, we're very often impressed by those. And I think with good reason, but I also think that, actually one of our maybe our moral duties right now is to um is in the times when we can when we can sense that there are lots of ways to deny the deny it you know the the, the meaningfulness of it to to give into coincidence or you know happenstance that actually we decide against that and we decide on meaning and it's not so we do it with every single thing that happens around us. So like the, the pencil rolls off the table and you're like, am I under psychic attack or whatever the fuck, you know, but rather to build the skill of decision making when it comes to meaning, not just, you know, and, and adding intention and meaning, not just uh, accepting it or receiving it when it's so absolute, you know, in the same way that like, when you meet somebody, sometimes you have to strive to love them, you know, in, in the same way. I think it's the, a, a, an overlapping skill there, you know? Yeah, I think it, it's kind of to be able to, yeah, to have some some sort of sense of discernment as to should I go with this, should I not? What One needs, yeah, a kind of willingness to, to, to take it seriously in the first place, to not... Uh, simply dogmatically reject this this is a sign but not equally to yeah um assume this is some sort of uh uh communication which which i i have to attend to which i have to follow <laughs> again maybe it's it's a similar similar problem to the one of um what it means for uh supernatural or whatever elements to be involved in in politics and if you if you mm simply repudiate that you you kind of create this counter possibility of a uh, a kind of uncritical um going along with it hmm. yeah that's that's a really good connection well 
so I think I think we'll just end here. I'm gonna <laughs> see if you have an answer to a question you pose okay. in your in your book. And I think I think you might be tempted to answer, yeah, that's why I wrote the book. So I didn't have to answer the question <laughs> directly, but let's see what happens. You know, you write um how to align an experimental understanding of knowledge production and an experimental writing practice with a no less experimental ontology of world making. What kind of anthropology would that be? What kind of world would that be? Um, since not everybody's listening is an anthropologist, I maybe ask you to take up the ladder. You know, what kind of world would that be when we, you know, align the understanding of creativity, um, when we align uh, our, our understanding of how things combine and metamorphose, metamorphosize all that um, with actually how we view the world itself, what kind of world would that be? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, what was part of why I wrote the book, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it would, it would certainly be a, um, a far from disenchanted world, but it would be, um, yeah, a world neither of, um, dogmatic disenchantment nor of um perhaps equally dogmatic and uncritical um adherence to certain kinds of enchantments um i think also it would be um in the the zapatista sense a world into which many worlds uh, could fit um but in a way, I guess what I'm talking about in the book is is as much the uh, obviously that a world into which many worlds could fit. The creation of that is is something that that operates on on different levels. One can look at the the plurality of of worlds, uh, but there also is the you know, what is the world into which those would fit, and there's a, there's a task of uh, of constructing that. I think um, mm. how could one envision the terms or the conditions of um, coexistence of worlds in such a way that that certain worlds don't destroy others as the basis of their existence mm -hmm. yeah I love that and and it and it makes me think why not flip but why not flip that statement to you know many worlds in which into which a world could fit right and it yeah. reminds me of this like you know the Rudolf Steiner thing where he says uh, there is no truth but a coincidence of all truths mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and I just think it's a coincidence of them you know and and I that's something I just find really uh, yeah I mean. It's a great answer, and it is one that's you know located in many different ways in your in your writing. And uh, I just I get so much out of it, so I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank oh, you. Well, I'm, I'm glad you <laughs> enjoyed the book. I mean, like, yeah, I was uh, was happy anyone anyone reads my stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, a lot more people come mm -hmm. to it now. And uh, I really appreciate having this conversation with you. Well, likewise. Uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is excellent. And uh, yeah, I will, I will listen, listen to more of the uh, uh, the podcasts as well. I've listened to a few, but uh, there's there's lots of uh, lots more to to listen to. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Stuart, thanks so much for being on the show, and everybody, thank you so much for listening. Bye now.